Chapter 3 Mount Doom Sam put his ragged orc cloak under his master's head and covered them both with the grey robe of Lorian. And as he did so, his thoughts went out to that fair land and to the elves, and he hoped that the cloth woven by their hands might have some virtue to keep them hidden beyond all hope in this wilderness of fear. He heard the scuffling and cries die down as the troops passed on through Eisenmouth, and it seemed that in the confusion and mingling of many companies of various kinds, they had not been missed, not yet at any rate. Sam took a sip of water, but pressed Frodo to drink, and when his master recovered a little, he gave him a whole wafer of their preface whey bread, and made him eat it. Then, too worn out to feel even fear, they stretched themselves out. They slept a little in uneasy fits, for their sweat grew chill in them, and the hard stones bit them, and they shivered. Out of the north from the black gate through Sirith Gorgor, there flowed whispering along the ground a thin, cold air. In the morning a grey light came again, for in the high regions the west wind still blow, but down on the stones behind the fences of the black land the air seemed almost dead, chill and yet stifling. Sam looked up out of the hollow. The land all about was dreary, flat and drab-hued. On the roads nearby nothing was moving now, but Sam feared the watchful eyes on the wall of Eisenmouth, no more than a furlong away northward. South-eastwards, far off like dark standing shadow, loomed the mountain. Smokes were pouring from it, and while those that rose into the upper air trailed away eastward, great rolling clouds floated down its sides and spread over the land. A few miles to the northeast, the foothills of the ashen mountains stood like a sombre grey ghost, behind which stood the misty northern heights that rose like a line of distant cloud hardly darker than the lowering sky. Sam tried to guess the distances and decide what way they ought to take. It looks every step of fifty miles, he muttered gloomily, staring at the threatening mountain. And that'll take a week if it takes a day with Mr Frodo as he is. He shook his head, and as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart, and always until now he had taken some thought for their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best their provision would take them to their goal, and when their task was done, they would come to an end. Alone, houseless, foodless, in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam. To help Mr Frodo to the last step and then die. Well, if that's the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton with her brothers, and the gaffer, and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr Frodo on this errand if there hadn't have been the hope of him ever coming back at all. Things went all wrong when he went down to Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned into a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning to some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. With a new sense of responsibility, he brought his eyes back to the ground near at hand, studying the next move. 
As the light grew, he saw that to his surprise, that from a distance what had seemed wide and featureless flats were in fact all broken and tumbled. Indeed, the whole surface of the plains of Gorath was popped with great holes, as if, well, there was still a waste of soft mud and had been smitten with a shower of bolts and huge slingstones. The largest of these holes was rimmed with ridges of broken rock, and broad fissures ran out from all directions. It was a land in which it would be possible to creep from hiding to hiding, unseen by all but with the most watchful eyes, possible at least for one who was strong and had no need for speed. But for the hungry and the worn, who had far to go before life failed, it had an evil look. Thinking of these things, Sam went back to his master. He had no need to rouse him. Frodo was lying on his back with his eyes open, staring at the cloudy sky. Well, Mr Frodo, said Sam, I've been having a look around and thinking a bit. There's nothing on the roads, and we'd best be getting away while there's still a chance. Can you manage it? I can manage it, said Frodo. I must. Once more they started, crawling from hollow to hollow, flitting behind such cover as they could find, but moving away in a slant towards the foothills of the northern range. But as they went, the most easterly of the roads followed them, until it ran off, hugging the skirts of the mountains, away into a wall of black shadows far ahead. Neither man nor orc now moved in its grey flat stretches, for the Dark Lord had almost completed the movement of his forces, and even in the fastness of his own realm he sought the secrecy of night, fearing the winds of the world that had turned against him, tearing aside his veils and troubled with tidings of bold spies that had passed through his fences. The hobbits had gone a few weary miles when they halted. Frodo seemed nearly spent. Sam saw that he could not go on much further in this fashion, crawling, stooping, now picking doubtful way slowly, now hurrying at a stumbling run. I'm going back on the road while the light lasts, Mr Frodo said. Trust the luck again. It nearly failed us last time, but it didn't. A steady pace for a few more miles and then rest. He was taking far greater risk than he knew, but Frodo was too much occupied with his burden and with the struggle in his mind to debate, and almost too hopeless to care. They climbed on to the causeway and trudged along, down the hard cruel road that led to the dark tower itself. But their luck held, and for the rest of the day they met no living or moving thing, and when night fell, they vanished into the darkness of Mordor. All the land now brooded as there was coming the great storm, for the captains of the west had passed the crossroads and set flames in the deadly fields of Imlad Morgul. So the desperate journey went on. As the ring went south, and the banners of the king rode north, for the hobbits each day, each mile, was more bitter than the one before as their strength lessened and the land became more evil. They met no enemies by day. At times by night, as they cowered or drowsed uneasily in some hiding beside the road, they heard cries and the noise of many feet or the swift passing of some cruelly ridden steed. But far worse than all these perils was the ever-approaching threat that beat upon them as they went. The dreadful menace of the power that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless malice behind the dark veil beyond its throne. Nearer and nearer it drew, looming blacker like the oncoming of a wall of a night in the last end of the world. There came at last a dreadful nightfall, and even as the captains of the west drew near to the end of the living lands, the two wanderers came to an hour of blank despair. Four days had passed since they had escaped from the orcs, but the time lay behind them like an ever-darkening dream. All this last day Frodo had not spoken, but had walked half-bowed, 
often stumbling as if his eyes no longer sought the way before his feet. Sam guessed that amongst all their planes, he bore the worst. The growing weight of the ring, a burden on the body, and a torment to his mind. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward off a blow, or to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look upon them. And sometimes his right hand would creep to his chest, clutching, and then slowly, as the well-recovered mastery, it would be withdrawn. Now, as the blackness of night returned, Frodo sat, his head between his knees, his arms hanging wearily on the ground where his hands lay feebly twitching. Sam watched him till night covered them both and hid them from one another. He could no longer find any words to say, and he turned to his own dark thoughts. As for himself, though weary and under a shadow of fear, he still had some strength left. The Lembus had virtue, without which they had long ago laid down to die. It did not satisfy desire, and at times Sam's mind was filled with the memories of food and the longing of simple bread and meats. And yet this waybread of the elves had potency that increased as travellers relied on it alone and did not mingle it with other foods. It fed the will, and it gave strength to endure, and master sinew and limb beyond the measure of mortal kind. But now a new decision must be made. They could not follow this road any longer, for it now went eastward into the great shadow. But the mountain now loomed upon their right, almost due south, and they must turn towards it. Yet still before it there stretched a wide region of fuming, barren, ash-ridden land. Water. Water, muttered Sam. He had stinted himself, and his parched mouth, his tongue, seemed thick and swollen. But for his care that for all his care, they had now very little left, perhaps half his bottle, and maybe there were still days to go. All would long ago have been spent if they had not dared to follow the orc road. For long intervals on that highway, cisterns had been built for the, the troops to use, sent in haste through the waterless region. In one, Sam had found some water left, stale and muddied by the orcs, but still sufficient for their desperate case. And that was a day ago now. There's no hope of any more. At last, wearied with his cares, Sam drowsed, leaving the morrow till it came. He could do no more. Dream and waking mingled uneasily. He saw lights like gloating eyes and dark creeping shapes, and he heard noises as of wild beasts or dreadful cries of tortured things, and he would start up to find the world all dark and only empty blackness all about him. Once only, as he stood and stared wildly around, did it seem that, though now awake, he could see pale lights like eyes. But they soon flickered and vanished. The hateful night passed slowly and reluctantly. Such daylight as followed was dim, for here as the mountain drew near the air was ever murky, while out from the dark tower there crept the veils of the shadow that Sauron wove about himself. Frodo was lying on his back, not moving. Sam stood beside him, reluctant to speak, and yet knowing that the word now lay with him. He must set his master's will to work for another effort. At length, stooping and caressing Frodo's brow, he spoke in his ear. Wake up, master, he said. Time for another start. As if roused by a sudden bell, Frodo rose quickly and stood up and looked away southwards. But when his eyes beheld the mountain and the desert, he quailed again. I can't manage it, Sam, he said. It's such a weight to carry. Such a weight. 
Sam knew before he spoke that it was in vain, and such words might do more harm than good, but in his pity he could not keep silent. Then let me carry it a bit for you, Master. You know I would, and gladly, as long as I have strength. A wild light came into Frodo's eyes. Stand away! Don't touch me! It's mine! Be off! His hand strayed to his sword hilt, but then quickly his voice changed. No, no, Sam, no, he said sadly. But you must understand, it is my burden, and no one else can bear it. It's too late now, Sam, you can't help me in that way again. I'm almost in its power now. I could not give it up, and if you tried, I'd go mad. Sam nodded. I understand. But I've been thinking, Mr Frodo, that there's other things you might do without. Why not lighten the load a bit? We're going that way now, as straight as we can make it, he pointed to the mountain. It's no good taking anything we don't need. Frodo looked again towards the mountain. No, he said. We shan't need much on that road, and at its end is nothing. Picking up his orc shield, he flung it away and threw his helmet after it. Then pulling off the grey cloak, he undid the heavy belt and let it fall to the ground, and the sheath soared with it. The shreds of the black cloak he tore off and scattered. There, I'll be an orc no more, he said. I'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Let them take me, if they will. Sam did likewise, and put aside his orc gear, and he took out all the things in his pack. Somehow each of those things had become dear to him, if only because he had borne them so far with so much toil. Hardest of all was to part with his cooking gear. Tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away. Oh, do you remember that bit of rabbit, Mr Frodo, he said, and our place under the warm bank in Captain Faramir's country the day I saw an oliphant? Oh, I'm afraid not, Sam, said Frodo. At least I know that such things happen, but I can't see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower. No image of moon or star are left to me. I'm naked in the dark, Sam, and there's no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. Sam went to him and kissed his hand. Then the sooner we're rid of it, the sooner to rest, he said, haltingly, finding no better words to say. Talking won't mean nothing, he muttered to himself, and he gathered up all the things that they had chosen to cast away. He's not willing to leave them lying open in the wilderness for any eyes to see. Stinker picked up that orc shirt, seemingly, and he isn't going to add the sword to it. My hands are bad enough when empty, and he isn't going to mess with my pans. With that, he carried all the gear away to one of the many gaping fishes that scored the land, and threw them in. The clatter of his precious pans as they fell down in the dark was like a death knell to his heart. He came back to Frodo, and then of his elven rope he cut a short piece to serve his master as a girdle, and bind the grey cloak close about his waist. The rest he carefully coiled and put back in his pack. Beside that he kept only the remnants of their waybread and the water bottle, and Sting still hanging by his belt, and hidden away in a pocket of his tunic next to his breast the file of Galadriel and the little box that she gave him for his own. Now at last they turned their faces to the mountain and set out, thinking no more of concealment, bending their weariness and failing wills only to the one task of going on. In the dimness of dreary day, few things even that land of vigilance could have espied them, 
save from close at hand. Of all the slaves of the Dark Lord, only the Nazgul could have warned him of the peril that crept, small but indomitable, into the very heart of the guarded realm. But the Nazgul and their black wings were abroad on another errand. They were gathered far away, shadowing the march of the captains of the West, and thither the thought of the Dark Tower was turned. That day it seemed to Sam that his master had found some new strength, more than could be explained by the small lightening of the load that he had had to carry. In the first marches they went further and faster than he had hoped. The land was rough and hostile, and yet they made such progress and ever the mountain drew nearer. But as the day wore on and all too soon the dim light began to fail, Frodo stooped again and began to stagger, as if the renewed effort had squandered his remaining strength. At their last halt he sank down and said, I'm thirsty, Sam, and didn't speak again. Sam gave him a mouthful of water. Only one more mouthful remained. He went without himself, and now once more the night of Mordor closed over them. Though all his thoughts were there, there came the memory of water, and every brook or stream or fount that he'd ever seen under the green willow shades or twinkling in the sun danced and rippled for his torment behind the blindness of his eyes. He felt the cool mud about his toes as he paddled in the pool by the bywater with Jolly Cotton and Tom and Nibs and their sister Roby, Rosie. Oh, but that was years ago, he sighed, and far away. The way back, as there is one, goes past the mountain. He could not sleep, and he held a debate with himself. Well, come now, I've done better than you hoped, he said. It began well, anyway. I reckon we crossed half the distance before he stopped. One more day will do it. And then he paused. Oh, don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came the answer in his own voice. We won't go another day like that. If he moves at all. If you can't go much longer giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go a good way, though, and I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. But what then, Sam Gamgee? What then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. To his dismay, Sam realised he had not got an answer to this. He had no clear idea at all. Frodo had not spoken to him much of his errand, and Sam only knew vaguely that the ring had somehow had to be put in the fire. The cracks of doom, he muttered. The old name rose to his mind. Well, if the master knows how to find them, I don't. Well, there you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless. He said so himself. You're the fool going on hoping and tolling and toiling. Could have lain down and gone to sleep together years ago, days ago, if you hadn't been so dogged. But you'll die, just the same or worse. You might as well lie down now and give it up. You'll never get to the top anyway. And if I get there, I'll leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam. And I'll carry Mr. Frodo myself if it breaks my back and my heart. Stop arguing. At that moment, Sam felt a tremor in the ground beneath him, and he heard or sensed a deep, remote rumble as thunder imprisoned under the earth. It was a brief red flame that flickered under the clouds and died away. The mountain, too, slept uneasily. The last stage of their journey to Oradun came. It was torment greater than Sam had ever thought. It was a torment greater than he ever thought he could bear. He was in pain and so parched he could no longer swallow even a mouthful of food. It remained dark, not only because of the smokes of the mountain. There seemed to be a storm coming up, 
and away to the southeast there was a shimmer of lightnings under the black skies. Worst of all, the air was full of fumes, breathing was painful and difficult, and dizziness came upon them so that they staggered and often fell. And yet their wills did not yield, and they struggled on. The mountain crept up ever near, until, if they lifted their heavy heads, it filled all their sight, looming vast before them, a huge mass of ash and slag and burnt stone, out of which a sheer-sided cone was rising into the clouds. Before the day-long dusk ended and true night came again, they had crawled and stumbled to its very feet. With a gasp, Frodo cast himself on the ground. Sam sat by him. To his surprise he felt tired, but lighter, and his head seemed clear again. No more debates disturbed his mind. He knew all the arguments of despair and would not listen to them any more. His will was set, and only death would break it. He felt no longer either desire or need of sleep, but rather of watchfulness. He knew that all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. The next day would be a day of doom, the day of final effort or disaster, the last gasp. But when would it come? The night seemed endless and timeless, minute after minute falling dead, and adding up to no passing hour, bringing no change. Sam began to wonder if a second darkness had begun and no day would ever reappear. At last, he, for, he groped for Frodo's hand. It was cold and trembling. His master was shivering. Oh, I didn't ought to have left my blanket behind, muttered Sam, and lying down, he tried to comfort Frodo with his arms and body. Then sleep took him, and the, the dim light of the last day of their quest found them side by side. The wind had fallen the day before as it shifted from the west, and now it came from the north and began to rise, and slowly the light of the unseen sun filtered down in the shadows where the hobbits lay. Now for it! Now for the last gasp, said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with great effort of will he staggered up, and then he fell upon his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him, and then pitifully he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him, if it broke my back, he muttered. So I will. Come on, Mr Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you. But I can carry you and it as well, so up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosely about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet, and then to his amazement, he felt that the burden was light. He feared that he'd barely have strength to lift his master alone, and beyond what he expected to share and the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting, sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because of some gift of final strength that was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than if he was carrying a hobbit child piggyback in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off, they had reached the mountain's foot on the northern side, and a little to the westward, 
There its long grey slopes, through, though broken, were not sheer. Frodo did not speak, and so Sam struggled on as best as he could, having no guidance but the will to climb as high as he might before the strength gave out and his will broke. On he toiled, up and up, turning this way and that to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward, and at the last crawling like a snail with a heavy burden upon his back. When his will could drive him no further, and his limbs gave way, he stopped and laid his master gently down. Frodo opened his eyes and drew a breath. It was easier to breathe up here above the reeks that coiled and drifted down below. Thank you, Sam, he said in a cracked whisper. How far is there to go? I don't know, said Sam, because I don't know where we're going. He looked back, and he looked up, and he was amazed to see how far his last effort had brought him. The mountain, standing ominous and alone, had looked taller than it was. Sam now saw that it was less lofty than the high passes of Ethelduath, which he and Frodo had scaled. The confused and tumbled shoulders of its great base rose for maybe 3,000 feet above the plain, and above them reared half as high again with a tall central cone, like a vast oast or chimney capped with a jagged crater. But already Sam was more than halfway up the base, and the plain of Gorgoroth was dim below him, wrapped in fume and shadow. As he looked up, he would have given a shout if his parched throat had allowed him, for amid the rugged humps and shoulders above him he saw plainly a path or road. It climbed like a rising girdle from the west, and wound snake-like about the mountain until before it went round out of view, it reached the foot of the cone upon its eastern side. Sam could not see the course immediately above him, where it was lowest, for a steep slope went up from where he stood, but he guessed that if he could only struggle on just a little way further up, they would strike this path. A gleam of hope returned to him. They might conquer the mountain yet. Why, it might have been put there a purpose, he said to himself. If it wasn't there, I'd have to say I'd be beaten at the end. The path was not put there for purposes of Sam. He didn't know it, but he was looking at Sauron's road from Barandur to Samoth Noir, the chambers of fire. Out from the dark tower's huge western gate, it came over a deep abyss by a vast bridge of iron, and then passing into the plain, it ran for a league between two smoking chasms, and so reached a long sloping causeway that led on to the mountain's eastern side. Thence, turning and encircling all its wide girth from south to north, and climbing it at last, high in the upper cone, but still far from the reeking summit, to a dark entrance that gazed back east straight to the window of the eye in Sauron's shadow mental for fortress. Often blocked or destroyed by the tumults of the mountain's furnaces, always that road was repaired and cleaned again by the labours of the countless orcs. Sam drew a deep breath. There was a path, but how he was to get up the slope he did not know. First he must ease his aching back. He lay flat beside Frodo for a while. Neither spoke. Slowly the light grew. Suddenly a sense of urgency which he did not understand came to Sam. It was almost as if he had been called. Now, now it will be too late. He braced himself and got up. Frodo also seemed to have felt the call. He struggled to his knees. I'll crawl, Sam, 
he gasped. So foot by foot, like small grey insects, they crept up the slope. They came to the path and found that it was broad, paved with broken rubble and beaten ash. Frodo clambered onto it and then moved as if by some compulsion as he turned slowly to face the east. Far off the shadows of Sauron hung, but torn by some gust of wind out of the world or else moved by some great disquiet within, the mantling clouds swirled and for a moment drew aside and he saw, rising black, blacker and darker than the vast shades amid which it stood, the cruel pinnacles and iron crown of the topmost tower of Baron Dora. One moment only it stared out, but as from one great window immeasurably high there stabbed northward a flame of red, the flicker of a piercing eye, and then the shadows were filled again and the terrible vision was removed. The eye was not turned to them, it was gazing north where the captains of the west stood at bay, and thither all its malice was now bent as the power moved to strike its deadly blow. But Frodo at that dreadful glimpse felt as one stricken mortally, his hand sought the chain about his neck. Sam knelt by him. Faint, almost inaudibly, he has heard Frodo whispering, Help me, Sam. Help me. Hold my hand. I can't stop it. Sam took his master's hands and held them together, palm to palm, and kissed them. Then he held them gently between his own. The thought came suddenly to him. He spotted us. It's all up or it soon will be. Now, Sam Ganji. This is the end of ends. Again he lifted Frodo and drew his hands down to his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Then he bowed his head, and struggling off along the climbing road. It was not as easy a way to take as it had looked at first. By fortune the fires that poured forth in great turmoils when Sam stood upon Sirith Ungul had flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes, and the road on this side was not blocked. Yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by gaping rents. After climbing eastward for some time it bent back upon itself in a sharp angle and went westward for its space. There at the bend it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone once long ago vomited from the mountain's furnaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned to the bend and even as he did so, out of the corner of his eyes he had a glimpse of something falling from the crag like a small piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. A sudden weight smote him, and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that clasped his master's. Then he knew what had happened, for above him, as he lay, he heard a hated voice. Wicked master, it hissed. Wicked master cheats us. Cheats, Schmegel. <coughs> we mustn't go that way. We mustn't hurt, precious. Give it to Schmeagel. Yes. Give it to us. Give it to us. With a violent heave, Sam rose up. At once he drew his sword, but he could do nothing. Gollum and Frodo were locked together. Gollum was tearing at his master, trying to get at the chain and the ring. This is probably the only thing that could have roused the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will. An attack an attempt to wrest his treasure from him by force. He fought back with a sudden fury that amazed Sam and Gollum also. Even so, things might have gone far otherwise if Gollum himself had remained unchanged. 
But whatever dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless, he had trodden, driven by a devouring desire and a terrible fear, they had left grievous marks on him. He was lean, starved, haggard, all bones and tight-drawn sallow skin. A wild light flamed in his eyes, but his malice was no longer matched by his old gripping strength. Frodo flung him off and rose up quivering. Down! Down! he gasped, clutching his hand to his breast, so that beneath the cover of his leather shirt he clasped the ring. Down, you creeping thing, and out of my path. Your time is at an end. You cannot betray me or slay me now. Then suddenly, as before under the eaves of Immanuel, Sam saw these two rivals with another vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing. A creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet still filled with a hideous lust and rage. And before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white, but at his breast it held the wheel of the fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone, and trouble me no more. If you touch me ever again, you'll be cast yourself into the fire of doom. The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet, at the same time, an insatiable desire. Then the vision passed, and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet, resting on his knees with his wide splayed hands upon the ground. Look out, cried Sam. He'll spring. He stepped forward, brandishing his sword. Quick, master, he gasped. Go on, go on. No time to lose. I'll deal with him. Go on. Frodo looked at him as if one now far away. Yeah, I, I must go on, he said. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell. He turned and went on, walking slowly but upright, up the climbing path. Now, said Sam, at last I can deal with you. He leapt forward with a drawn blade ready for battle, but Gollum did not spring. He fell flat on the ground and whimpered. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live just a little longer. Lost. Lost, we're lost, and when precious goes we'll die, yes we'll die in the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay his treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved, and also it seemed like the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved, unable to find peace or relief in life ever again. But Sam had no words to express how he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing, he said. Go away. Be off. I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you. But be off, or I shall hurt you. And with this nasty, cruel steel. 
rifle and got up on all fours and backed away for several paces. Then he turned as Sam aimed to kick him, but fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path, but could not see him. As fast as he could, he trudged up the road. If he had looked back, he might have seen not far below Gollum turn again, and with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes, come swiftly but wearily, creeping behind, a slinking shadow amongst the stones. The path climbed on. Soon it bent again, and with a last eastward course, passed in a cutting along the face of the cone, and came to the dark door in the mountainside, the door of Samoth Noor. Far away now, rising towards the south, the sun, piercing the smoke and haze, burned ominous, a dull, bleared disk of red, but all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. Sam came to the gaping mouth and peered in. It was dark and hot, and a deep rumbling shook the air. Frodo! Master! he called, but there was no answer. For a moment he stood, his heart beating with wild fears, and then he plunged in. A shadow followed him. At first he could see nothing. In his great need he drew out once more the file of Galadriel, but it was pale and cold in his trembling hand, and threw no light into that stifling dark. He had come into the heart of the realm of Sauron, and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers here were subdued. Fearfully, he took a few uncertain steps in the dark. Then all at once there came a flash of red that leapt upward and smote the high black roof. And then Sam saw that he was in a long cave or tunnel that bored into the mountain-smoking cone. But only a short way ahead, its floor and walls on either side were cloven by a deep, great fissure out of which the red glare came. Now leaping up, now dying down into darkness, and all the while, far below, there was a rumour and a trouble as of great engines throbbing and labouring. The light sprang up again, and there on the brink of the chasm, at the very crack of doom, stood Frodo, black against the glare, tense, erect, but as if he had been turned to stone. Master, cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred and spoke with a clear voice, indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him and rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do the deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly as he set it on his finger and vanished from Sam's sight, Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment many things happened. Something struck Sam violently in the back, his legs were knocked from under him and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor as a dark shape sprang over him. He lay still and for a moment all went black. And far away as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samothnor, the very heart of his realm, the power in Barandur was shaken, and the tower trembled from his foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye pierced all shadows, looking across the plain to the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were laid against him at last, bare. 
Then his wrath was blazing and consuming flame, but his fear rose like a black smoke to choke him, for he knew his deadly peril and the threat upon which his doom now hung. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran. His slaves quailed, and his enemies halted, and his captains suddenly stareless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they have forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry, the last desperate race there flew fast in the winds, the Nazgul, the ringwaves, and the storm of wings that they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Sam got up. He was dazed, and blood streaming from his head dripped into his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum on the edge of the abyss was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed, so that now there the brank he almost tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising, falling again, and all the while he hissed but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger, the red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upwards to his mouth. His white fangs gleamed and then snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was the wrought of the living fire. Precious, precious, Gollum cried, my precious, oh my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment in the brink, and then with a shriek he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail. Precious! And he was gone. There was a roar and a great confusion of noise. Fire leapt up and licked the roof. The throbbing grew to a great tumult, and the mountain shook. Sam ran to Frodo and picked him up and grabbed him out of the door. And there upon the dark threshold of Samanor, high above the plains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood forgetting all else and gazed as one turned to stone. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it towers and battlements, tall as hills, founded upon mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits, great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons, shares as cliffs, gaping gates of steel and adamant, and then all passed. Towers fell and mountains slid, Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave, and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And then at last, over the miles between, came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and a roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and Oradrin reeled. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder, seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell the torrent of black rain, and into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, 
shooting like flaming bolts as caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky they crackled, withered, and went out. Well, this is the end, Sam Gamgee, said a voice by his side. And there was Frodo, pale and worn, and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will, nor madness, nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweet days in the Shire. Master, cried Sam, and fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world for a moment he felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. Your hand, he said, and I have nothing to bind it with or comfort it. I would have spared him a whole hand of mine, rather, but he's gone beyond all recall, gone forever. Yes, said Frodo. You do remember Gandalf's words. Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. But for him... The quest would have been in vain, even at the bit of an end. So forgive him, let us forgive him, for the quest is achieved, and all is now over. I am glad you're here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. <laughs>